Well, good morning. My name is Jim. I'm one of the elders here. And Jose said, I'm not going to touch Romans 9. I'm going to Africa. <laughs> so, and my, my computer just went off. I, I'm still making friends with this computer. You know, it's new. And uh, so, uh, I personally like the sun. Warm weather. If I had a place that I could live, it would be Medellin, Colombia. Beautiful, warm weather all year round. And uh, so the last two days, well, actually Thursday and Friday, we've been at the state track tournament. Our oldest grandson, who's only a sophomore, surprised us by, at the regionals, making it to state. So I told Gail, I said, we'll go down, you know, on Thursday. We'll watch him. We'll go home. You know, he's not going to make it through to the finals. <laughs> he made it to the finals by one hundredth of a second. <laughs> Only in Eugene can they time that at Tracktown USA. So we had to go back. Well, we went back on Friday. And we are good grandparents. And... Uh, he didn't win, but I asked him, what about next year? He says, next year, I'm going to come in fifth. So we'll see what happens next year. So today, we have the opportunity to look in to one of the greatest passages in Scripture. You don't want to miss it. There's, there's a lot of controversy swirling around this passage, which causes people to miss the great blessings. That's not going to happen to us today. And so I, I, I think that what we need to do is open our Bibles right now, Romans 9. Keep your finger in there. We'll be going in and out of Romans 9 until we get to the end of the passage. Romans 9, 14 to 29. And so, and we're going to take a look at how was Paul weaves this argument. He brings out the character of God. Why is it important that we know who the true God is? Or is it important? I found a long time ago, both in my own life and in counseling people, when you're counseling people and you say you have to obey God, ha-ha, who are they obeying? That's why it's so important. Obey, obey the God that, uh, of my ancestors. Obey uh, 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 a, a different type of a God, a God of the media. What kind of a God am I obeying? So, when you're suffering, when you're being persecuted, maybe misunderstood, harassed, it's important to know who the real God is. And when you have an important decision to make, when you're facing temptation, or, or when you perhaps have sinned, or when it looks like the entire world is falling down around you, who do you turn to? The God of the Bible, or a God made up by the culture of our ancestors, or, or, or a God with no absolutes? So, that's why we need to know who the real God is, and we're going to see how, how he comes out in this passage. Let's review the argument. First eight chapters of Romans left one question perhaps unresolved. Now, we know that to become right with God, justified, remember the word justified? Come right with God, it's by faith. Now, wait a second, Paul. Haven't you left yourself open to the charge 
that God is acting unrighteously by allowing all these Gentiles, non-Jews, Gentiles, non-Jews, into the family of God. Didn't he go back on his covenant promise to Israel? If you're right, Paul, how can that be fair for God to turn his back on Israel in favor of this new community of faith called the church? To answer this objection, Paul goes to the Old Testament. First, he shows that the covenant promise, the promise he made, is not extended automatically to all physical descendants of Abraham. Remember when Hosea is preached on not all Israel is Israel. That's verses 1 to 9. From the beginning, he has freedom to extend mercy to whomever he chooses. That's chapter 9, 10 to 21. We'll see that today. God is not being inconsistent calling out a people from the non-Jews, the Gentiles, verses 22 to 26. Also, he is not being inconsistent to Israel by preserving only a small group called a remnant from the people who rejected faith in favor of works. That's 27 to 33. So, now, you ready? Let's dive into chapter 9. We're looking at God's character in Paul's arguments. He says, verse 14, What then shall we say is God unjust? Here Paul introduces the objection. Can someone accuse God of being unjust by allowing all these Gentiles into the people of God? Paul's immediate answers in the text is, what does yours say? Not at all. The old version, the King James said, God forbid. The NLT says, perish the thought. And the message, don't you love the message? Says, not so fast. So, that leads us to the first characteristic of God in this. God is just. He is just. It means he is fair. He's impartial. You know, when I was Growing up and, and even recently, one of my big hang-ups was that I thought God had favorites, and I wasn't one of them. So during the last 30 years, my good wife, who's sitting over here to my left, has been showing me scriptures that say God has no favorites. He is just, and many times in the Bible, he's pictured as a judge. And we know from Luke 18 that some judges, quote, neither fear God nor care about people. What about God? Revelation 16, 7. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgment. The fact that God is just assures me that when he acts as judge, he will administer justice perfectly, fairly. His ability to do this involves other aspects of his character. I realize that. What, what other aspects? Well, hmm. his ability to discern the truth in every situation, his ability to see into the hearts and minds of people, his wisdom, his strength, his authority, his love, his kindness, his mercy, his moral character in establishing what is right and wrong. So, number one, he is just. You can take that one to the bank. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Remember, the Jews wanted to restrict his mercy just to them. No non-Jews allowed, and this was carried on into Acts. I want to read from Acts 11. I'll put it up on the screen. 
19 to 24. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only, notice that, only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyrus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentile believers turned to the Lord. When the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas, who was a Jew, to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. So when Paul says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, he's quoting Exodus 33. Now, you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I'm going to put it on the board. But here's the context. He, how will anyone know that you look favorably upon us, says Moses, upon me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people of the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably, favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. Does he do that? Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So our next characteristic of God is he is good. He is just, remember, now he is good. What is the goodness of God? What does it mean to us? The goodness of God is one of his attributes. It's, it's he is inherently good. Psalm 34, 8 tells us, taste and see the Lord is good. He's the foundation of goodness and that everything is good. He did not attain it for, obtain it from another source. People can have good traits, they can do good deeds, but goodness is not in our character. It is part of God's character. So what does it do? First of all, his goodness provides us with certain benefits. It gives us the perfect model of what good is. By knowing God and learning about his goodness, we can come to recognize true goodness, and you know what things are good. We should pray as the psalmist did in Psalm 119.68. Psalm 119.68. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. We can look at God as the perfect role model to teach us about goodness and how to do good things. Second, it assures us that God's purpose for us is good. Just as parents want good for their children, our Heavenly Father wants only good for his kids. Luke 11, 11, and 13. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to you who ask him? We should remember, however, that um, uh, the good things may not always show up as happy experiences. Um, sometimes good can be disguised as adversity or perhaps hardship. 
But remember when we studied Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that in all these things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been the called according to his purpose. Secondly, his goodness offers security and encouragement. Actually, it's, it's a third. We can depend on the unchanging goodness of God. God will always be good. His character does not change. He will continue to give good things no matter what package they happen to come in. So when? Let's go back. You're going through a difficult situation. You're faced with a temptation. You have to make a difficult decision. Perhaps you've sinned or you're being persecuted in some way. What do you say? You are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. We were... Um, I remember it was on a March 28th because it's uh, our son's birthday. And uh, we were sitting there and we were at the part of the, the party where we were eating cake and ice cream. My favorite part, by the way. And uh, uh, it's got to be dulce de leche ice cream, just telling you. Haagen-Dazs dulce de leche. <laughs> and uh, we were... We were we were eating uh, cake and ice cream, and we received a phone call. And our very close friends, their daughter was coming home, and she stopped to help a guy who had a, had a small wreck on the side of the road. And, if you, and you know, there's a reason why this is called the Sunset Highway. Have you ever been driving that direction, and the sun is in your eyes, and you can heart? Well, that happened to another driver, and he ran right over her. And so when we got the, uh, we got the phone call, we dropped everything. And we got in the car and drove up onto the hill to where she had been life flighted. And when she, she later died there in the hospital. And um, I got there, and my friend, the father, he looked at me and he said three words God is good. And so if you ask them even today, how many children do you have? They say, three who are still sinners, one's perfect. But, you know, his goodness and his character are displayed in two words here, mercy and compassion. God is just, God is good, but God is merciful. What's being merciful? That's easy. Not getting what you deserve. We deserve punishment. We don't get it. Mercy is, is the withholding of a just condemnation. Mercy is usually shown to someone who has wronged you. For example... Someone's committed a great sin against you. Despite being hurt, you decide to show merciful. So God is just. He's good. He's merciful. But he's also, in this context, compassionate. What is compassion? You know, the best illustration of, 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 of compassion to me is the Good Samaritan. He helped a person he shouldn't have because he was from a race that was treated with contempt. It took him out of his comfort zone and cost him something. Have you ever been to a cross-country meet? You know what cross-country meet is, don't you? You stand there, watch the kids leave, drink coffee, and watch them come back and go home. That's a cross-country meet, right? So, we were, our, our, our second oldest grand, grandson runs cross-country. So, we're out at this cross-country meet. There's 80 kids. You know, 80, they're starting 80 kids. 
and then they have to funnel down to an area that there's like four get through. So you have to get out to the front really quickly. And so we're out there at the turn. We're around the turn waiting for Luke to come. And so, so we're out there, you know, and, and they go up. And all these 80 kids, you know, are coming. And they start passing. No Luke. You know, come on. No Luke. Where is he? No Luke. You know, finally, he's near the back. And he, he comes running through. Way to go, Luke. You know. So when it was over, you know, so, so when it was over, I walked up to him, put my arm around him and said, what happened? He said, a kid on another team fell down. And I stopped to help him. Compassion. That's compassion. He, he lost the race because he helped another kid on another team who fell down. See, that's, God is compassionate. God is merciful. God is just. God is good. A couple of verses. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Romans eleven thirty two. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on how many? Everyone. He is compassionate. He knows our sorrows, our brokenness, our problems. He suffers with us. He is with us. Well, the the best way I can say it is Nehemiah 9.17. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. Psalm 103, 8 to 11. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. Back into Romans 9, 16. It does not, therefore, depend upon human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Here's our problem, human desire and effort. We want to do everything. You know, when I go on vacation, you know, my wife wants to sit out and read a book. I said, we got to do something. I mean, I can't, I mean we've got to do something. And um, human desire and effort. You know, and, and that's what's taught by our culture, and that's what's in our heart. We've got to do something. I was in, in a tribe in Guatemala, and um, in that tribe, they have an interesting way of trying to solve a guilt problem. If they feel guilty about something, they pick up the largest rock or boulder that they can, that they can pick up, and they struggle up a certain hill, and, and then when they get to the top, They drop it, and that helps them with this feeling. You notice they have to do something. It's by human effort, and that's what he says here. It does not, therefore, depend upon human effort or desire. You know, for the Scripture says, verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, back in the Old Testament in Exodus, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, this part 
about the hardening of Pharaoh. Uh, it's, a, it's a little troubling, but first, let's talk about Pharaoh a little. He was not innocent. He was a brutal dictator overseeing the terrible abuse and oppression of the Israelites, who likely numbered at that time about one and a half million people. The Pharaoh ordered that the male Israelite children be killed at birth in Exodus 1.16 to stop the growth. And the Pharaoh, God hardened, was an evil man. Second, before the first plagues happened, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. I think we counted five times about letting the Israelites go. I'll read just one of them. Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. Pharaoh could have spared Egypt all of the plagues if he hadn't hardened his own heart and uh, against God's commands. As a result of Pharaoh's hard-hardness, God hardened Pharaoh's heart even further, allowing for the last plagues. Question is, how does God harden Pharaoh's heart? I don't know. I got some theories, but I don't know. However, as we studied the scriptures from, 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 from Genesis to Malachi, I did come to a conclusion. The great majority of people who have, who, who have hard hearts in the scripture, they get there by rejecting truth themselves. Two scriptures, Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let's be clear. Rejecting God's call to obedience hardens the heart. There's an easy solution. When God calls to obedience, we obey. Verse 19, 9.19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? In other words, what he's saying is, uh, I'm just doing what God told me to do or made me to do. But who are you, Paul says, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and others and some for common use? He, God is just, yes, he's good, he's merciful, he's compassionate, but he's also sovereign. Doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make a jar for decoration and another for common use? Absolutely, let's let God be God, for sure. He, he molds in ways that, that I wouldn't. That's what's called sovereignty. It's his glorious power. He, he is free to act. When considering a sovereignty, humans have no real grounds, is what Paul is saying here, to question his wisdom. Now let's talk about God's wisdom for a second. Let's face it. He chooses, he molds, he does things differently than I would. I wouldn't have chosen Gideon to defeat the Midianites. In fact, if I would have been back in that culture, I wouldn't have been able to choose David because the culture says it should be the oldest of the brothers. God chooses the youngest. How about the disciples? Would you have chosen Galileans? I wouldn't have. They, had no, they didn't have education. They, in fact, in that time, they didn't have the right accent. 
God chose Galileans. How about Jesus himself, John 1, 45 and 46? Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, hey, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And, and he says, Nathaniel says, instead of saying, great, let's go, he says, Nazareth? Uh, exclaimed Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? The fact that in his wisdom he molds differently, he chooses differently, to me, that gives me great hope. Sovereignty. Let's talk about this word for a couple minutes. If you were to look up the word sovereign, You'd probably find words like superior, greatest, uh, supreme in power, authority, ruler, independent of others, etc. Now, what it means is that there's absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that's outside of God's influence and authority. As King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God has no limitations. Consider just a few of the claims the Bible makes. Revelation 21.6, God is above all things and before all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Colossians 1.16, which is one of my wife's favorite verses. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Jeremiah 32.17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. That's what sovereignty is. It means that he is the ultimate source of all power and authority and everything that exists. Only God can make those claims. Therefore, it's God's sovereignty that makes him superior to all other gods and him alone worthy of our worship. Now, think about the implications of that about how, what that means in our life. Because God is sovereign and he loves you, nothing will ever come into your life that he doesn't know about. Decree or allow. Consequently, no matter what you face in life, you can take comfort in the fact that God is sovereign. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? If you have a chance, you can name your next child Nebuchadnezzar. There's actually two Z's in that name. Nebuchadnezzar. In Spanish, it's Nabucodonosor, so it's no better. Um, remember, he set up a statue, so everyone had to worship him. And he claimed to be mighty, and he ended up living and feeding with the animals. After he got his sanity back, here's what he said in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, with two Z's, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. This is a pagan king. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does what he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him and say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? Now, being sovereign has gotten a bad rap recently. I personally have been in many countries where a ruler becomes a dictator, a sovereign dictator. And as a result, he's accountable to no one. 
And, and what is the result of that? Nobody trusts him. Absolutely. Nobody ever trusts him. And that's why this country was founded on a system of checks and balances so that no one has the absolute power and authority. Lord Acton in the 19th century said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad. That's why we don't trust those who have absolute power. God is not like that. He's the only one who can deal rightly, justly, and fairly with absolute power. Now, I, I thought to myself, I'm going to listen to some of my thoughts over the years, you know, when things happen. Uh, do we say, why is God doing this to me? My own mother, I, I heard her say one time, why, what did I do that God would do this to me? God, do you see me? Do you care how I feel? Have you forgotten me? Do you know what I'm going through? You know, that's questioning God's sovereignty. You know, we put sovereignty together with some of his other characteristics. He is just. He is good. He is kind. He is merciful. He's compassionate. Can God handle it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, what are some of the benefits for me? Belief in God's sovereignty gives reason. It gives purpose to my life. The first and more important result of trusting in God's sovereignty is that, is that we will have a sense of purpose and meaning where we will never be floundering around. You will commit even the tragedies that happen into God's hands because you know he is good and he is sovereign. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there is a good biblical example in the life of Joseph. Remember Joseph, Old Testament? Joseph, he, uh, because of his brother's jealousy, Joseph was sold into slavery and purchased by the captain of the Egyptian palace guard. Everything went fine until the, the uh, palace guard's wife made a move on Joseph. And he was accused unjustly, ends up in jail. So there we have in jail. There he meets two of Pharaoh's servants and correctly interprets their dreams. By the way, I am not real good at interpreting dreams, you know? So if you have a dream, you know, don't come to me to interpret. I'm, I don't do it. You can go to Joseph. So these two, they tell them his dreams. One is executed. The other one is reinstated. Later, Pharaoh himself has a dream. And the servant then remembers about this guy who interprets dreams. So he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and he becomes second in command in Egypt, and he's able to save many, including his own father. Now, how did Joseph understand all the heartache? The time in prison, the slavery, being forgotten. Joseph said to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. See, he believed in God's sovereignty. Joseph, also speaking to his brothers, said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. If Joseph had not believed in God's promises to him and the power of his sovereignty to bring it about, I think Joseph probably would have ended up angry with God. Bitter, perhaps. It's not fair. However, Joseph didn't because he stood on what he knew about God. We're back to understanding who God is. 
how would I have responded? I'm not totally sure. Probably I would have said it's not fair. I mean, being sold into slavery by my own family? How unfair and how unloving. Uh, uh, being framed by, the, 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 uh, by, by this guy's wife and then thrown into prison? He does good to the butler by telling him the interpretation of the dream, but the man gets released and then forgets about him. Yet Joseph trusted God that he would fulfill his ultimate plan, and he did. He believed in God's sovereignty. Can you trust God is working in the same way no matter what is happening to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. 9.22, Romans 9.22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction. God is just, he's good, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's sovereign, but he's also patient, great patience. Remember what this word used, it was in the old version, any of you who've read the King James, it was long-suffering, long-suffering. In the, the Bible, this word, which is great patience here, is made up of two Greek words, long-temper, long and temper. In other words, long-tempered. To be long-suffering, then, is to have great self-restraint when one is stirred to anger. A long-suffering person does not immediately retaliate or punish. In other words, God has a long fuse. So, now, in the context here, it doesn't say why God has great patience on those who are on their way to destruction. But I think we can surmise from other passages that he suffers long waiting for them to repent. 2 Peter 3.15, New Living Translation. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Have you been praying for someone for a long time? I mean, a long time? We've been praying for my family for almost 50 years. Almost half a century. We've been praying. God is long-suffering. He's patient. He's waiting. One of my cousins died. I was so discouraged. I was so discouraged <laughs> when he died. I didn't even want to go to the funeral. My wife said, you got to go. I said, I don't want to go. You got to go. So I went. And I found out at the funeral that before he died, a faithful guy from a local church went over and led him to Christ. Keep praying. I found that out at the funeral. Keep praying. Don't give up. God is patiently waiting for them to repent. Verse 23. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. For he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was, it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth 
with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would be, become like Sodom, we would become like Gomorrah. I think this part is a summary to everything that's been said. Paul quotes at length from the prophet Hosea, showing God's commitment to accept those who were not my people. From Isaiah, he demonstrates the fact that God had previously turned away from his rebellious people, but he always left himself a small group called a remnant as a promise that brighter days are ahead. This God continues to do, as is clearly seen in Paul's own conversion, that he is calling people out. God's consistency is seen and maintained. It is plain to see that the apostle in this passage, far from giving in to the criticisms, shows how, in fact, the good news, the gospel for everyone, is thoroughly consistent with, uh, with all God has been doing through the years. As a result, God is seen to be superbly sovereign in his dealings with humans in ways that wonderfully preserve his authority and, uh, and his power, yet retain the dignity with which God endowed us as humans when he created us in his own image. Only God could do that. So, the next time you're suffering, you're being persecuted, you got, you're being harassed, have to make a really important decision, you're facing a temptation or have sinned, or when it looks like the world is falling apart around you, you can turn to a God who is just, who is good, who's merciful, he's compassionate, he's sovereign, and he's patient. I'll tell you, it doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these moments together. Thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you, Lord, that you are just. You are good. You are merciful. You're so compassionate. You're sovereign, and you are patient. Lord, help us to understand each one of those. And each time we go to you, we see you in your true character. Lord, thank you for blessing each one of us. In Jesus' name.